Chapter Three of the Pioneers, or the Sources of the Susquehanna, a descriptive tale by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Three. Quote, all that thou seest is nature's handiwork. These rocks that upward throw their mossy brawl, like castled pinnacles of elder times, these venerable stems that slowly rock their towering branches in the wintry gale, that field of frost which glitters in the sun, mocking the whiteness of a marble breast, yet man can mar such works with his rude taste, like some sad spoiler of a virgin's fame. Unquote. Duo some little while elapsed ere marmaduke temple was sufficiently recovered from his agitation to scan the person of his new companion he now observed that he was a youth of some two or three and twenty years of age and rather above the middle height further observation was prevented by the rough overcoat which was belted close to his form by a worsted sash much like the one worn by the old hunter the eyes of the judge, after resting a moment on the figure of the stranger, were raised to a scrutiny of his countenance. There had been a look of care visible in the features of the youth when he first entered the sleigh, that had not only attracted the notice of Elizabeth, but which she had been much puzzled to interpret. His anxiety seemed the strongest when he was enjoining his old companion to secrecy, and even when he had decided and was rather passively suffering himself to be conveyed to the village, the expression of his eyes by no means indicated any great degree of self-satisfaction at the step. But the lines of an uncommonly prepossessing countenance were gradually becoming composed, and he now sat silent and apparently musing. The judge gazed at him for some time with earnestness, and then smiling as if at his own forgetfulness, he said, I believe, my young friend, that terror has driven you from my recollection. Your face is very familiar, and yet, for the honor of a score of bucks' tails in my cap, I could not tell your name. I came into the country, but three years since, returned the youth coldly, and I understand you have been absent twice that time. It will be five tomorrow, yet your face is one that I have seen, though it would not be strange, such has been my affright, should I see thee in thy winding sheet, walking past my bed to-night. What sayest thou, Bess? Am I composmentous or not? Fit to charge a grand jury, or what is this now of more pressing necessity, able to do the honors of Christmas Eve in the hall of Templeton? More able to do either, my dear father said a playful voice from under the ample enclosures of the hood, than to kill a deer with a smooth-bore. A short pause followed, and the same voice, but in a different accent, continued. We shall have good reasons for our thanksgiving to-night, on more accounts than one. The horses soon reached a point where they seemed to know by instinct that the journey was nearly ended, and bearing on the bits as they tossed their heads, they rapidly drew the sleigh over the level land which lay on top of the mountain, 
and soon came to the point where the road descended suddenly, but circuitously, into the valley. The judge was roused from his reflections when he saw the four columns of smoke which floated above his own chimneys. As house, village, and valley burst on his sight, he exclaimed cheerfully to his daughter, See, Bess, there is thy resting place for life, and thine too, young man, if you will consent to dwell with us. The eyes of his auditors involuntarily met, and if the color that gathered over the face of Elizabeth was contradicted by the cold expression of her eye, the ambiguous smile that again played about the lips of the stranger seemed equally to deny the probability of his consenting to form one of this family group. The scene was one, however, which might easily warm a heart less given to philanthropy than that of Marmaduke Temple. The side of the mountain on which our travellers were journeying, though not absolutely perpendicular, was so steep as to render great care necessary in descending the rude and narrow path which in that early day wound along the precipices. The negro reined in his impatient steeds, and time was given Elizabeth to dwell on a scene which was so rapidly altering under the hands of man that it only resembled in its outlines the pictures she had so often studied with delight in childhood. Immediately beneath them lay a seeming plain, glittering without inequality and buried in mountains. The latter were precipitous, especially on the side of the plain, and chiefly in forest. Here and there the hills fell away in long, low points, and broke the sameness of the outline, or setting to the long and wide field of snow, which without house, tree, fence, or any other fixture, resembled so much spotless cloud settled to the earth. A few dark and moving spots were, however, visible on the even surface, which the eye of Elizabeth knew to be so many sleighs going their several ways to or from the village. On the western border of the plain, the mountains, though equally high, were less precipitous, and as they receded opened into irregular valleys and glens, or were formed into terraces and hollows that admitted of cultivation. Although the evergreens still held domain over many of the hills that rose on this side of the valley, yet the undulating outlines of the distant mountains, covered with forest of beech and maple, gave a relief to the eye and the promise of a kinder soil. Occasionally spots of white were discoverable amidst the forest of the opposite hills, which announced by the smoke that curled over the tops of the trees, the habitations of man, and the commencement of agriculture. These spots were sometimes, by the aid of united labor, enlarged into what were called settlements, but more frequently were small and insulated. Though not so rapid were the changes, and so persevering the labors of those who had cast their fortunes on the success of the enterprise, that it was not difficult for the imagination of Elizabeth to conceive they were enlarging under her eye while she was gazing in mute wonder at the alterations that a few short years had made in the aspect of the country. The points on the western side of this remarkable plain, on which no plant had taken root, were both larger and more numerous than those on its eastern, and one in particular thrust itself forward in such a manner as to form beautifully curved bays of snow on either side. On its extreme end an oak stretched forward, 
as if to overshadow with its branches a spot which its roots were forbidden to enter. It had released itself from the faldron that a growth of centuries had imposed on the branches of the surrounding forest trees, and threw its gnarled and fantastic arms abroad in the wildness of liberty. A dark spot of a few acres in extent at the southern extremity of this beautiful flat, and immediately under the feet of our travelers, alone showed by its rippling surface and vapors which exhaled from it, that what at first might seem a plain was one of the mountain lakes, locked in the frost of winter. A narrow current rushed impetuously from its bosom at the open place we have mentioned, and was to be traced for miles as it wound its way toward the south through the real valley, by its borders of hemlock and pine, and by the vapor which arose from its warmer surface into the chill atmosphere of the hills. The banks of this lovely basin at its outlet, or southern end, were steep but not high, and in that direction the land continued, far as the eye could reach, a narrow but graceful valley, along which the settlers had scattered their humble habitations, with a profusion that bespoke the quality of the soil and the comparative facilities of intercourse. Immediately on the bank of the lake, and at its foot, stood the village of Templeton. It consisted of some fifty buildings, including those of every description, chiefly built of wood, and which in their architecture bore no great marks of taste, but which also, by the unfinished appearance of most of the dwellings, indicated the hasty manner of their construction. To the eye they presented a variety of colors, a fewer white in both front and rear, but more bore that expensive color on their fronts only, while their economical but ambitious owners had covered the remaining sides of the edifices with a dingy red. One or two were slowly assuming the russet of age, while the uncovered beams that were to be seen through the broken windows of their second stories showed that either the taste or the vanity of their proprietors had led them to undertake a task which they were unable to accomplish. The whole were grouped in a manner that aped the streets of a city, and were evidently so arranged by the directions of one who looked to the wants of posterity rather than to the convenience of the present incumbents. Some three or four of the better sort of buildings, in addition to the uniformity of their color, were fitted with green blinds, which, at that season at least, were rather strangely contrasted to the chill aspect of the lake, the mountains, the forest, and the wide fields of snow. Before the doors of these pretending dwellings were placed a few saplings, either without branches or possessing only the feeble shoots of one or two summers' growth, that looked not unlike tall grandeurs on posts near the threshold of princes. In truth, the occupants of these favored habitations were the nobles of Templeton, as Marmaduke was its king. They were the dwellings of two young men who were cunning in the law an equal number of that class who chafed to the wants of the community under the title of storekeepers, and a disciple of Asculapius, who for a novelty brought more subjects into the world than he sent out of it. In the midst of this incongruous group of dwellings rose the mansion of the judge, towering above all its neighbors. It stood in the center of an enclosure of several acres, which was covered with fruit trees. Some of the latter had been left by the Indians, 
and began already to assume the moss and inclination of age, therein performing a very marked contrast to the infant plantations that peered over most of the picketed fences of the village. In addition to this show of cultivation were two rows of young Lombardy poplars, a tree but lately introduced into America, formerly lining either side of a pathway, which led from a gate that opened on the principal street to the front of the building. The house itself had been built entirely under the superintendence of a certain Mr. Richard Jones, who we have already mentioned, and who, from his cleverness in small manners, and an entire willingness to exert his talents, added to the circumstances of their being sisters' children, ordinarily superintended all the minor concerns of Marmaduke Temple. Richard was fond of saying that this child of invention consisted of nothing more nor less than what should form the groundwork of every clergyman's discourse, viz. Firstly, and lastly, he had commenced his labor in the first year of their residence by erecting a tall, gaunt edifice of wood, with its gable toward the highway. In this shelter, for it was little more, the family resided three years. By the end of that period, Richard had completed his design. He had availed himself, in his heavy undertaking, of the experience of a certain wandering eastern mechanic, who, by exhibiting a few soiled plates of English architecture, and talking learnedly of frises, entablatures, and particularly of the composite order, had obtained a very undue influence over Richard's taste in everything that pertained to that branch of the fine arts. Not that Mr. Jones did not affect to consider Hiram Doolittle a perfect empiric in his profession, being the constant habit of listening to his treatises on architecture with a kind of indulgent smile, yet either from an inability to oppose them by anything plausible from his own stores of learning, or from secret admiration, Richard generally submitted to the arguments of his co-adjutor. Together they had not only erected a dwelling for Marmaduke, but they had given a fashion to the architecture of the whole country. The composite order, Mr. Doolittle would contend, was an order composed of many others, and was intended to be the most useful of all, for it admitted into its construction such alterations as convenience or circumstances might require. To this proposition Richard usually assented, and when rival geniuses who monopolized not only all the reputation, but most of the money of a neighborhood, are of a mind, it is not uncommon to see them lead the fashion, even in grave matters. In the present instance, as we have already hinted, the castle, as Judge Templeton's dwelling was termed in common parlance, came to be the model, in some one or other of its numerous excellences, for every aspiring edifice within twenty miles of it. The house itself, or the lastly, was of stone, large, square, and far from comfortable. These were four requisites on which Marmaduke had insisted with a little more than his ordinary pernacity, but everything else was peaceably assigned to Richard and his associate. These worthies found the material a little too solid for the tools of their workmen, which in general were employed on a substance no harder than the white pine of the adjacent mountains, 
a wood so proverbially soft that is commonly chosen by hunters for pillows. But, for this awkward dilemma, it is probable that the ambitious taste of our two architects would have left us more to do in the way of description. Driven from the faces of the house by the obduracy of the material, they took refuge in the porch and on the roof. The former, it was decided, should be severely classical, and the latter a rare specimen of the merits of the composite order. A roof, Richard contended, was a part of the edifice which the ancients always endeavored to conceal, it being an excrescence in architecture that was only to be tolerated on account of its usefulness. Besides, as he wittily added, a chief merit in a dwelling was to present a front on whichever side it might happen to be seen, for, as it was exposed to all eyes in all weathers, there should be no weak flank for envy or unneighborly criticism to assail. It was therefore decided that the roof should be flat, and with four faces. To this arrangement Marmaduke objected the snows that lay for months, frequently covering the earth to a depth of three or four feet. Happily, the facilities of the composite order presented themselves to effect a compromise, and the rafters were lengthened, so as to give a descent that would carry off the frozen element. But unluckily, some mistake was made in the admeasurement of these material parts of the fabric, and one of the greatest recommendations of Hiram was his ability to work by the square rule. No opportunity was found of discovering the effect until the massive timbers were raised on the four walls of the building. Then, indeed, it was soon seen that, in defiance of all rule, the roof was by far the most conspicuous part of the whole edifice. Richard and his associate consoled themselves with the relief that the covering would aid in concealing this unnatural elevation. But every shingle that was laid only multiplied objects to look at. Richard essayed to remedy the evil with paint, and four different colors were laid on by his own hands. The first was a sky blue in the vain expectation that the eye might be cheated into the belief it was the heavens themselves that hung so impossibly over Marmaduke's dwelling. The second was what he called a cloud color, being nothing more or less than an imitation of smoke. The third was what Richard termed an invisible green, an experiment that did not succeed against a background of sky. Abandoning the attempt to conceal, our architects drew from their invention for means to ornate the offensive shingles. After much deliberation and two or three essays by moonlight, Richard ended the affair by boldly covering the hole beneath a color that he christened Sunshine, a cheap way, as he assured his cousin, the judge, of always keeping fair weather over his head. The platform, as well as the caves of the house, were surmounted by gaudily painted railings, and the genius of Hiram was exerted in the fabrication of divers, urns, and moldings, which were scattered profusely around this part of their labors. Richard had originally a cunning expedient by which the chimneys were intended to be so low and so situated as to resemble ornaments on the balustrades, but comfort required that the chimneys should rise with the roof, in order that smoke might be carried off 
and thus that became for extremely conspicuous objects in the view. As this roof was much the most important architectural undertaking in which Mr. Jones was ever engaged, his failure produced a correspondent degree of mortification. At first he whispered among his acquaintance that it proceeded from ignorance of the square rule on the part of Hiram, but as his eye became gradually accustomed to the object he grew better satisfied with his labors, and instead of apologizing for the defects, he commenced praising the beauties of the mansion-house. He soon found hearers, and, as wealth and comfort are at all times attractive, it was, as has been said, made a model for imitation on a small scale. In less than two years from its erection, he had the pleasure of standing on the elevated platform, and of looking down on three humble imitators of its beauty. Thus it is ever with fashion, which ever renders the faults of the great subjects of admiration. Marmaduke bore his deformity in his dwelling with great good nature, and soon contrived, by his own improvements, to give an air of respectability and comfort to his place of residence. Still, there was much of incongruity, even immediately about the mansion-house. Although poplars had been brought from Europe to ornament the grounds, and willows and other trees were gradually springing up nigh the dwelling, yet many a pile of snow betrayed the presence of the stump of a pine, and even in one or two instances unsightly remnants of trees that had been partly destroyed by fire were seen rearing their black glistening columns twenty or thirty feet above the pure white of the snow. These, which in the language of the country are termed stubs, abounded in the open fields adjacent to the village, and were accompanied occasionally by the ruin of a pine or a hemlock that had been stripped of its bark, and which waved in melancholy grandeur, its naked limbs to the blast, a skeleton of its former glory. But these and many other unpleasant additions to the view were unseen by the delighted Elizabeth, who, as the horses moved down the side of the mountain, saw only in gross the cluster of houses that lay like a map at her feet, the fifty smokes that were curling from the valley to the clouds, the frozen lake as it lay embedded in mountains of evergreen, with the long shadows of the pine on its white surface, lengthening in the setting sun, the dark ribbon of water that gushed from the outlet and was winding its way toward the distant Chesapeake, the altered, though still remembered, scenes of her childhood. Five years had wrought greater changes than a century would produce in countries where time and labor have given permanency to the works of man. To our young hunter and the judge the scene had less novelty, though none ever emerged from the dark forest of that mountain and witnessed the glorious scenery of that beauteous valley, as it burst unexpectedly upon them, without a feeling of delight. The former cast one admiring glance from north to south, and sank his face again beneath the folds of his coat, while the latter contemplated with philanthropic pleasure the prospect of affluence and comfort that was expanding around him, the result of his own enterprise, and much of it the fruits of his own industry. The cheerful sound of sleigh-bells, however, attracted the attention of the whole party as they came jingling up the sides of the mountain at a rate that announced a powerful team and a hard driver. The bushes which lined the highway interrupted the view, and the two sleighs, 
were close upon each other before either was seen. End of chapter 3 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the spring of 2008.